Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. This week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast is brought to you by the patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast. This amazing group of individuals contribute financially to the Rural Woman Podcast to ensure the stories of women in agriculture hit your earbuds each and every week. Want to join them in supporting the stories of women in agriculture while getting access to extended episodes, patron-only episodes, and other great perks? Head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Mickey Willenbring. Mickey is a Lakota Puerto Rican combat veteran, mother, activist, and champion of Indigenous food sovereignty. She retired from a life in the U.S. Army to become a rancher focusing on sustainable livestock production in CO, Oregon. There, she raises heritage breeds of sheep, goats, cattle, and poultry while balancing the duties of motherhood and community. I so enjoyed chatting with Mickey for this podcast interview, and I learned so much from her, and I'm sure you guys will as well. Mickey has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the heritage breeds of her animals and puts so much time, care, and intention into each and every one of them. And I am just so thankful that Mickey found the time to chat with me and share her story with me and with you all. Be sure after this episode, if you enjoyed hearing from Mickey, please be sure to support Mickey and the work that she's doing on Dot Ranch. I'll be sure to leave links in the show notes for you guys to do that. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Mickey. Hello, Mickey. Welcome to a woman podcast. I am so excited to have you as a guest on the show today. I'm excited to learn more about you and to hear your story. Well, hello. I'm excited to join you and all of your listeners today as well. For my listeners who are unfamiliar with you, Mickey, can you give us your background and your journey into agriculture? Oh, you're going to have to forgive me because I don't usually talk about myself and normally talk about my animals. My name's Mickey. I am an Oglala Lakota and Puerto Rican combat veteran, U.S. Army for way too long for polite company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I found myself, long story super short, I got catastrophic injured on deployment in Iraq. And when I came home, I had a really hard time integrating back into society. I had all of these great ideas of what I was going to do with my life after I retired, but I did not expect retirement to come early. And I certainly didn't expect to become a, a disabled veteran. I had a lot of problems with internalized age and not being able to accept my own physical limitations after being injured. I had a lot of problems with PTSD because of the things that I had experienced. And I tried to find a kind of a new path through life. I had been a mechanic in the Army and a 50 cal gunner and uh, 
Mark 19 gunner. And so I have a hard time finding ways to take those job skills and translate them back into a civilian life where I had such a strong physical disability that being a mechanic was no longer an option. Originally, I had gone to college and was doing an online degree program to get my degree in natural resource management and policy. And I thought, you know, I'll go through this program and then I'll apply to law school, get my degree in environmental law, and then go to work for either my own tribe or another tribe on environmental policy over rangeland management, which is really a big thing. But while I was going through the degree program, I realized that my PTSD impacted my ability to deal with other people. And it impacted my ability to live in an urban environment. And I realized that a whole bunch of things were kind of stacking up against me. And I had to find a way to navigate myself back to a point of balance. And environmental law was not. I realized that I actually probably would do more damage trying to take on a public job that I'm not suited for than by finding another path. And I turned my attention towards looking for a piece of property in a rural area. And I had like a pretty tight list of things that I wanted that to have. Now, a little bit of reverse, because I always talk in circles here. Way back in the, when I was younger, I had a foster family that raised sheep. And they were the nicest people. And they taught me so much about sheep. They actually had a on-site slaughter facility. So kind of macabre. But as a five-year-old, I used to work in their slaughter facility because they couldn't keep me out of there. So they decided to give me a job, right? And they had me take all of the orders and put them in the separate trays and wash each one and then one up and label it. So I got to learn like the anatomy of sheep from the inside out in kind of a, you know, it is a little macabre, whatever. Moving on from that. My other job there was to take care of all the lambs. And those are the lambs that don't have moms. And considering my own family situation at the time, that was a really kind act of them to give to me because I got to hear other animals that were weaker and more helpless and more lost than I was at that time. So when I was overseas in Iraq, I saw these sheep over there that were so beautiful and elegant and so completely different than any sheep I had ever seen before. And when I realized that environmental law was not my path after all, the first thing that came to my mind was that family's kindness from way back in the day and those sheep that I saw in northern Iraq. And so I started looking for the sheep. And I realized that at that time point, this is 2006, 2007, those sheep were not in the U.S. But a friend of mine who knew that my late husband was Navajo sent me a link to a flock of Navajo sheep on Craigslist. And so the first thing I did after finding the property that I wanted and buying the land was bring home a bunch of chicks. Because, you know, we all know chickens are the intro for ag. Then these Navajo churro sheep. 
So it's been, it's been a circle. My whole life is a circle because I went from, you know, being that child with that family, learning how to raise sheep. And then I ported myself through most of my adolescence working on other people's ranches with sheep and ran off into the army to get as far from sheep as I could possibly get until I ran into them again in another country on the other side of the freaking world in some really crappy circumstances. And they were the light that came and shone through at every single dark point of my life. So now I run Dot Ranch and I have a flock of Navajo churro sheep and Navajo Angora goats and Esther cattle. So it's just kind of... Uh, I kind of got a laugh about it every time I think about it because I, I actually sent a letter to thank family and found out that after I had sent it that the uh, father of the family had already passed away and so had my old foster mom. And so they never got my letter thanking them. But I often think that I hope that they are smiling down on me from wherever and kind of getting a kick out of the fact that after all that talk about meadow maggots, here I am with sheep again. <laughs> <laughs> I, like you said, Mickey, that is just full circle, absolute full circle, and just an amazing story of resilience. And thank you for sharing that with us. And I know I speak on behalf of my listeners here. Thank you for your service and what you've done for your country and full circle. I, I'm, I'm misty over here. That's what we say on the podcast, <laughs> Mickey, when I get a little teary eyed behind the microphone. <laughs> so, oh gosh, take us back to 2010 and how began the journey of building your ranch dot ranch. You, you found the sheep and, you know, tell us how you grew from there. Well, you know, it's kind of a, kind of, uh, once again, a lot of things kind of fell together almost by accident. Craigslist plays a recurring role in this. So when I, Craigslist and being a veteran, it's really in this land that I purchased belonged to a World War II veteran who was a Navy longshoreman. And somebody else had actually bid on it before me, and he had accepted bids. And then I outbid them, but he had to let their deal play out all the way. So they ended up not being able to meet the closing date. And so I ended up with this property, but I had to like jump through all these crazy hoops to get because I didn't qualify for regular financing because I was unemployed, because I was disabled. My income was freaking crappy because my only income was from my disability. And at the time, the only way that I could buy the land was by making a 25% down payment. So I had to sell all the silver and gold that had been collected over the years. And I ran these big fundraisers online with the gaming community, actually, with the video gaming community who kind of helped me through my injuries over the years. And like all this, a lot of times when you're disabled, you kind of get stuck in one spot. And because I had to have so many surgeries and I spent so many months being unable to walk, video gaming as a way to kind of cope with the stress. 
And the gaming community rallied up and signal boosted all of my auctions so that everything went for way more than I expected it to. And I ended up raising over $100,000 in 30 days. Made the down payment on the ranch, got the financing, and got everything hammered through. The realtors were all no help. And it was really helpful that I already knew a lot of things that I had to look for, like water. <laughs> and so that was kind of like part of my criteria of picking the land. Once I had the land, the, the previous owner had run cattle for 25 years on this land. And so it was very overgrazed and it was in very poor condition because he was running large full-size beef cattle on really rain. And they had overgrazed it so badly that they were sinking into the mud. And so there were like all these cow-sized holes everywhere. It was just, you could not walk across the falling on your face because of all the holes from the overgrazing. And the undergrowth that had come back was really this, it's a forested and pastured acreage. And so the forest areas, the undergrowth that came in was all toxic weeds. And so I was looking at it and I was like, you know, there's a lot of possibilities for this land, but I'm going to have to put in a lot of effort in order to clean it up enough and bring in grazing animals. So the first thing that we brought in was chickens, and we kept those for chickens and Muscovy ducks, and we kept those and raised up to kind of fuel cash for the for the cleanup effort. And then I had to go through the woods by hand. My old Gimpy butt is out there by hand with freaking wheelbarrows because I couldn't afford a tractor, hand clearing all of these noxious weeds out. And then finally, we were able to bring in the sheep. We started out with 10 Navajo churros, two rams and eight ewes. And they were the skinniest, sorriest American sheep I had ever laid eyes on. I bought them from a small farm that the wife of the family wanted to have animals, but the entire rest of the family ended up revolting when they realized that animals are work. And so these animals were in real condition and even worse, the, the children of the family had not necessarily been the most gentle souls with these sheep. So they came in with like behavioral issues and health issues and I built the trust up with them and kind of brought them back to health. And then I started looking around for more sheep to expand the gene pool in the flock. And I realized that most of the Navajo churro sheep that could be found went back to the same breeders. And so I became concerned that, you know, we need to be able to have enough to have pool here. And I found out about a Navajo gathering called Sheep is Life, which is held by the Navajo Lifeway organization. And I pulled together money and got my trailer and my truck ready and drove off to Arizona to go to Sheep's Life so that I could bring home more sheep that were unrelated. I took with me six lambs that I had for sale or to trade 
and a steer. <laughs> I had this sharp ear that I had picked up on Craigslist for a really good deal and raised it up and run into a man in Idaho that had Navajo churro sheep, but he didn't want to have them anymore because he decided they were too much work. So he had an ad on Craigslist that said, we'll trade six sheep for a calf. And so I showed up with this Charlet steer and I traded him for these six sheep that hadn't ever been sheared in their entire life. Like I couldn't even see the sheep under the wool and went down to Arizona and picked up my first Navajo churro sheep down from there. And then my, I have a child, his dad was Navajo, and his paternal gave me some sheep from their flock to bring back. And I came back home with all of these other sheep, and that's just kind of how I started out. I don't <laughs> so kind of tidbits along the way, I cracked the head on my back while I was towing the trailer because I was using an old forerunner to tow a horse trailer and it was just way too much trailer for that much truck. And I ended up having to spend most of my sheet budget on a down payment on another truck from one of my sisters. Wow. She was kind of like a... <laughs> Kind of, kind of just like my life, like, holy cow, we have to keep scrapping for everything and somehow we make it. That, that is you to a T there, Mickey, like you are scrappy and you make it and you make it work with what you have and you just fight for what you have. And it's, it's inspiring. And I know it's inspiring to me and everyone else. And you weren't kidding when you said that your farm was built on Craigslist almost. <laughs> yes. Yes, very much so. Craigslist had a starring role yes. in the beginning of this ranch. <laughs> Absolutely. So you mentioned a few of the different heritage breeds that you have on your ranch of different breeds of animals. And we know about the importance of the Navajo churro sheep to you. But what made you decide to bring in the heritage breeds of livestock as well? I'm going to be real. The, the sheep are the most labor-intensive farm animal you could ever have. And, you know, I worked on large commercial farms before. So I've worked with flocks ranging from 300 breeding ewes to 3,000. And they were always commercial breeds except for one. I did work on one place that had fits. And then I've worked with Suffolks and Suffolk camp crosses. And I've also worked with uh, a number of hair sheep, which are not necessarily my favorite, but I do actually recommend for people in specific circumstances. So kind of coming in to the, the Navajo churro sheep, a lot of it was the personal connection, but some of it was also practicalities. And those practicalities kind of bled into how we looked at how to integrate other livestock here. I had experience working with Charlays and Angus and Herefords, and I knew that as a disabled person, and especially as somebody who is no longer quite so young and spry, working with full-size cattle breeds was kind of out in the realm of being a stupid thing to freaking do. <laughs> uh, I, had to, I had to really look at it and go, you know, I'm not quick enough or young enough to heal from an incident with a 2,000 animal. 
And so we went through a couple different breeds, heritage breeds of cattle before we settled on what we're running now. And the, the main decisions were based on temperament and how easy they were to handle and how easy it was to find quality breeding stock. We got interested in the Irish Dexters for the cattle because they were small cattle. And they are pretty wily. We live in an area with a lot of predators, a lot of large predators. We, we live in an area that has bears and cougars. And we have had significant livestock losses in the past to those animals. The Irish Dexters are very canny. They're a little too canny sometimes. They can have some temperament issues. So we've really learned to be cautious about bringing in new animals and be careful with our handling of young animals so that they don't get too full, but also so they know that we're not going to like skin them alive or something crazy. The, the Navajo Angora goats that we brought in, I noticed I, I had goats at one point in my life had Nubian goats that I was running for dairy. And when I got changed to a different duty station, I had to sell off all of my animals, of course. So getting into the Navajo Angora goats, mostly I originally did it for the meat because I really like goat meat and I didn't plan on selling them to anybody else or, or getting into seriously breeding them. There was a person who had a, a number of goats a young man on the reservation and he really wanted some of my sheep and he didn't have cash. So I told him I would just trade him sheep for goats. And that's how I ended up with the first of them. Kind of wore on me because they're funny and they're quirky and they're cute animals. Their fiber is nice too. So I ended up expanding the Navajo Angora goats here. And as far as treat goes, the poultry actually probably make us the most money for the least amount of inputs out of everything here. So we raise heritage birds. We have modeled Java and we had black copper Moran's chickens. We kind of miss out because they, they are not predator savvy <laughs> and they must be day glowed hawks because they really disappear quick. We also have the Muscovy, and I really like those guys because they're good for fly control, and they have a killer, killer market for their meat because they actually have some of the best flavor out of all the ducks. So that's something that actually is back for us in choosing livestock breeds is how do they taste? Because as much as I love my animals, we also utilize our animals. And producing food is something that's really important to me, especially because I spent so much of my childhood hungry. So being able to feed people high-quality protein at an affordable price is something that we have to balance here. That balance comes out in our breeding, breeding these heritage breeds for specific stronger traits like being good, easy moms and being thrifty, being able to put on, how would you say it, like a reasonable weight gain for the amount of input of what they're eating. All these different factors kind of play in with that. Right. And well, what you said, providing 
lifestyle that, you know, not only that you love and you cherish and you take such good care of, but providing that affordable meat source and the protein source to your community is so important and, you know, is is the reason that why why we ranch and why we farm, right, is to provide for others and for our community. Absolutely. Can you talk about any hardships that you kind of want to highlight that you've faced over the last 11 years? You know, the biggest, the biggest challenge for us other than land acquisition itself, which continues to be kind of a thing because I'm still looking for land. I would really like to be able to find irrigatable acreage so that we could grow more of our own hay because right now I purchase almost all of our hay from other growers. But one of, one of the biggest challenges has been that, especially for me, coming from a Native and Hispanic background, I never saw people like me who owned land. I only saw people like me working for landowners. And so I never had training in business management or starting or anything. Because I didn't even think that was a possibility for somebody like myself. That it never occurred to me that someday I would run my own business on my own land. When I started out, I had really no idea of how to do the, the business aspect of things, how to price things. I, I did a lot of the same mistakes that most small homesteaders do. I like I priced my meat way too low and I priced things too low to reflect the the actual cost behind producing them. And I never, to this day, I don't pay myself. Like I, I don't, I have seasonal employees and we take on interns on the internships here, but I could never afford to replace myself. And I know this because every single time I've ever tried to go on a vacation, I've ended up paying like boo-coo to have other people do what I do. And usually I came back to a disaster. <laughs> Not always. We do finally have a couple of people that are trustworthy, but there were some notable moments of, oh, crap. <laughs> I think one of the other things that's really hard is it's, and this is going to sound kind of, it's going to sound kind of crappy, but balancing romance and agriculture is the son of a gun. When I bought this ranch, I was still single and I had a, a romantic interest but we we had to have like a hell of a learning curve to get to where I'm now married we're we have a great relationship now there are certain things we don't do together and I think a lot of people in ag fineness and there's like t-shirts and coffee cups and memes about I'm sorry for the things we said when we were sorting cattle or I'm sorry for the things I said while we were sorting sheep and those things exist for a reason because in high stress it's easier to snap at the ones you love than it is to treat hired help poorly and that sounds crappy, but it's it's freaking real because when you're paying someone to do things, you kind of know that like they are still doing you a service. You're still paying them for that and they could walk away from you at any point. But when you're dealing with your spouse, there's almost like a sense of entitlement, like, well, they should be helping me because they're me. And we need to remind ourselves that 
That's not true. Just because someone marries into a farming family does not mean that they themselves will automatically become a farmer or a rancher. And that's been something that has kind of been a learning curve to figure that out. And on figuring that out, a lot of tensions have eased because now we have more of a clear expectations of what is everybody's role here. Are you an eater? Are you to be eaten? Or are you to be feeding the eaten? (laughs) That is so perfectly Mickey. And thank you for sharing that because I myself married into agriculture and defining our roles as a husband and a wife and as a farming family in one of the most difficult things that has been part of my agricultural journey. And you just said it so eloquently. And, you know, you need to figure out what these roles are and learn from the mistakes that you've made while you're sorting your cattle or your sheep. And those things deserve their own t-shirts or their own coffee mugs because it's a real thing that happens. (laughs) It really is. And, and, you know, you got to learn how to laugh at yourself, too. Like, my my spouse is super high-powered in his field, and he's kind of the best at what he does. And then I'm very competitive as well. I was always, you know, you don't go into the military without a certain level of aggression. We're going to be real about that. I'm definitely a stereotypical type A everything has to be perfect sort of person. And when we are working on things where both of us are getting super competent in our field, but both of us have an unequal level of knowledge of what we're doing in the actual field, sometimes that can cause some communications issues. And working through that is tighter but there were definitely a couple moments where I was like, oh gosh, is he going to leave me over this? Like, is this too much? Right. Yeah. And, you know, we're still together. We've now been together for 13 years and we're doing pretty good. But there were times where I really wondered if sheep were going to cost me the love of my life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true. So true. So I want to flip that question now and share with us some wins and some things that you have been very proud of yourself over the last 11 years on Dog Ranch. I have to say like the biggest thing for me is that being able to help other people learn about sheep has been and learn about livestock. One of the biggest things for me, realizing that my knowledge is important and actually is worth something and can help others has been huge because not, you know, working in all these different areas. I always thought of myself as unskilled labor. I was never paid a minimum wage. Oftentimes in ag, you know, there is no minimum wage. And so oftentimes there were some jobs where I sometimes felt like I was paying them to work for them. And the being female in a male dominated occupation, you go through some crap. And that's true both within the ag world. And it is really easy to be disheartened by the way that you get treated by others. So when you realize your power 
and realize that all of those years of going through that kind of crap actually do add up into something that is worthy. It's huge. So for me, the most rewarding is getting the interns and getting the people here to learn and being able to share that knowledge to people and know that it's actually helping save animals and know that it's helping people avoid mistakes or make better. Just like I think for me, one of the coolest things in the world is hearing somebody say, I talked to you on the phone two years ago and you gave me really great advice and I followed it and everything is good now. And I'm like, hot damn, because most people call up for advice and then do whatever they want anyway. <laughs> so it's really cool when you get somebody who actually listens and then it works out. That's like the highlight right there. Right. Another thing that's really, really big to me is that I went from 10 sheep to like right now there's, right now there's too many here. I'm going to be real, but there's, you know, several hundred here now. And I've been doing this. I realized this year we crossed a line. We're no longer considered beginning farmers because in the U.S. you're considered a beginning farmer for the first 10 years. And kind of a weird little thing is that because I only had experience working on other places but no experience running my own ranch, I still qualified as a beginning farmer even though I had decades of experience with livestock. In the past 11 years here, we've gone from like all sorts of major Craigslist mayhem with random farm animals to now holding workshops and teaching other people everything from livestock management to business planning. And that just continually blows me away. Like it's the most surreal thing ever. I'm like, holy cow, this freaking street kid runs a successful business and helps other people learn how to make their visions come true as well. That, that's just freaking cool. I mean, it's, I don't even know how to say how excited I am for being. Well, you said it perfectly. It's freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's so good. It's so good. And to be able to share your knowledge with others and help them continue to build their own dreams. And it's just, it's basically just like the snowball effect. And it's just helping one person out and they're going to go and be able to help others out and for their businesses to grow and be successful. It is just, it's an ode to you and all of the hard work that you've put in to be where you guys are today. It's an ode to a lot of people because it isn't just hard work that got us here. Like we actually owe our kids in a lot of ways too. At different points along the way, you know, like so in 2012, I found out there was a, I just got curious and looked up online veterans in agriculture. And I popped up this thing about Women Veterans in Agriculture Conference, and it was being held by the Farmer Veteran Coalition, a new nonprofit organization at that time. And I looked at that and I was like, well, that sounds really cool, but I'm already committed to working for a different convention at the same date. So I called them up to ask them are you guys going to record this or stream it or online for people that can't come in person? Because I'm really interested in attending this conference. They asked me a little bit about myself. They're like, why are you interested? And I was like, I'm a 
veteran out in Oregon and I have a small ranch that, you know, just starting out. I've only been doing it a couple of years now and I'm looking for more resources to see, just kind of network with other people more. And we were like, can you hold one second? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm not really a people person. So I was kind of a little irritated. And next thing you know, this woman comes on the phone and she's, I want you to apply for a grant with our organization. I was like, wait, how did we go from finding out whether or not y'all are live streaming this conference to we want you to apply for a grant? No, it's like, I don't really think I'm the kind of person that should apply for a grant. And in the back of my head, I was thinking, is of a grant? I'm like, who am I? I'm just some dumb freaking lady out in the middle of nowhere with some like scraggly sheep. <laughs> and she was like, no, no, you need to apply for this grant. We, we, really think that you should apply for this grant. She goes, look, if you, if you apply, the worst thing that can happen is you won't get it. And so she helped me apply to this grant. And lo and behold, I got a $5,000 grant from a veteran coalition and the Newman's Own Foundation. And that grant changed everything. I went from scrapping their all of this different stuff out of like basically plywood I found on the side of the road to being able to actually purchase equipment that let me handle my sheep without having to pay other people to do it for me. And I with the grant money an incubator so that I could start incubating the chicken eggs. And that was what really started us off on the right foot because that gave me some basic tools allowed me to take autonomy over what I was doing here instead of having to farm it out to other people and, and pay them to do it. We ended up getting a couple other small grants from other organizations aimed at veterans. And so, you know, Works for Veterans was one of the organizations that gave us a grant to purchase ATVs because I am so disabled that I can't walk the perimeter of my own property. It's too steep. I don't have enough degree of motion in my leg to be able to get up and down the hills. And so they purchased an ATV for me so that I could drive all over the place and finish fences and whatnot. We got a couple of small local agricultural organizations, those grants were more than just small amounts of money. They were more than just the equipment that they purchased. They were acts of faith from a wider community outside of just our family and friends that said, we believe in what you're doing and we think you are worthy of helping self-confidence that came from those grants can't even be explained. But I deeply believe that we would not be where we're at today if it had not been for that first $5,000 grant from the Farmer Veteran Coalition. Right. And well, the support of the community and backing you and giving you the confidence to know that you are worthy of what you're doing and give you the resources to continue to do what you're doing. And you know, a bit of help sure went a long way for you. And when I was doing my research for our interview, I noticed that you, obviously, you give back to your community so much more than I think most people do. And it's just amazing to see what you're doing. In 2020, you began the Veterans Pantry Project. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that and how that came about? 
also, 20 was a doozy for all of us because of COVID. We had actually gotten some contracts with some restaurants that were going to be purchasing meat from us. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a great year. So we bred all of our sheep and ended up with record-breaking crowns. And then COVID hit. We lost all of the contracts but one. So all of a sudden, we had all these butcher gates, all of these sheep, and no place to put them. And I started thinking about it. And I was like, well, I could go ahead and open up the market or we could take them to farmer's market. But then I started thinking, you know, we're not the only ones suffering here. Other farms have to also be losing their contracts. And there's going to be a whole bunch of community who are hungry because they're losing their employment. Because when the service industry crashes, so does the entire community. And, you know, it's not, I don't look at things like trickle dynamics. I don't think what impacts rich people actually impacts those of us down on the bottom. I think what impacts those of us on the bottom is going to impact the ones above. And so for me, the part of the community that needs the most and the most love is the part on the very bottom. So I thought, how can I both help my community and help other farmers in the same situation and help keep my business and do something with all these butcher dates? And I just, on kind of a whim, I saw this, this other veteran-owned business, Family Dog Screen Printing, had run a ad on Instagram saying that they were going to do discounts for people doing fundraisers. And I thought, you know what? I'll send them my logo design and get a quote and see if they want to print some T-shirts. And then I can sell the T-shirts and use that to pay for the meat processing for all of these animals that were already scheduled to go in and purchase locally grown produce from other farmers in my area and then use that to put together food boxes for disabled and elderly veterans are to be at risk to COVID and who aren't going to necessarily be able to leave their homes. And rural veterans are some of the most underserved veterans that there are by pretty much by right of being rural. But, you know, we have a large rural veteran population out here that are going to be really at risk. How can we feed them and also help ourselves and help other farmers? So I ordered like 50 t-shirts and I thought, we'll be lucky if we sell all of them. I put them on Instagram. Those t-shirts sold out in four hours. I couldn't believe it. And then people were like, we missed out on a shirt. How do we get one? So um, I put in a second order for a much larger order for shirts and hoodies. And through the sales of these T-shirts and hoodies, we managed to provide months of food boxes for hundreds of families. That is absolutely incredible. That is so cool. Uh, you know, like sometimes I get these crazy ideas and I don't ever think they're actually working. And when they do work, it pulls me away. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that actually right. worked out. That right. was one of them. Yeah. So what was the reaction to the veterans in your area? You know, everybody was really deeply grateful. And one of the biggest problems with food banks is that 
most of the food that they have is stuff that no one can actually use or you get like really random people clean out their cupboards and then dump it all on the food bank and expect that somehow someone else is going to use what they did not use in a freaking year of it sitting in their cupboard. In real life, the things that in banks, people don't always know how to cook it. They don't always have the ability to eat it. A lot of people that are on, that are receiving food from food banks are disabled themselves or have diabetes or have other health issues. That's the whole reason they need that resource in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be really demoralizing to go to a food bank, have to kind of prostrate yourself to these strangers and home and half of the box you can't even use. Right. So one of the things that we did was we would ask people, what do you want? What can you use? And we would list what the vegetables and fruits of that week were. And if there was they didn't want, we would just say, tell us you don't want that so that it can go to someone else who will use it. And if you don't know how to cook it, but you want to try it, I'll give you a recipe. And so... That was huge. We're deeply thrilled. We had growers that donated fruit, nuts, herbs, and vegetables, and then we put all of our meat into them. And so it, it was, we ended up partnering with the Albany American Legion, who let us use their operating food bank as a drop point for veterans coming in to fill orders. And then we also did delivery service directly to the doors of veterans that were unable to come into town to pick up their food boxes. That is just so great. And to find, you know, this full of that we're willing to help you and for everyone kind of just to benefit one another, like what a great way to build community and, you know, support the people who need it most. Because like you said, helping the people at the bottom needs to be because the people at the top, though they may be losing profits or their stocks may have went down or anything, at the end of the day, I don't really think some of these problems they were having were as big or as urgent as the problems that people were facing and are still facing at the bottom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Profit margins are nothing compared to actual starving. Yes, absolutely. That makes me a little misty, Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) That is absolutely true. So I want to talk to you about something that prior 2020, I can honestly admit that I didn't know a lot about. The term food sovereignty isn't new, but it wasn't something that many mainstream outlets have ever talked about prior to the pandemic and what we saw happen. What is food sovereignty and what are your hopes for the future in regards to Indigenous food sovereignty? Oh, food sovereignty is being able to produce the food that your community consumes and being able in that production to also have choice over what you produce. The most, most of the U.S. relies on grocery chains, but most of the U.S. is also served by supermarkets that have a huge variety in what they offer at competitive prices. It is not like that on reservations. On 
reservations, there are usually very few grocery stores. They have very little choice in what's offered. They have your prices then off of the reservation. And the options that are there are often really unhealthy. There will be a fantastic Cheeto selection and not knocking Cheetos because it's kind of like a national food for some of us. But there would be hardly anything for produce or hardly anything for meat. When I was growing up, my family was very poor. And my mom was very much into growing her own food, not just out of necessity, but necessarily the main driving force. So I grew up with this kind of value system that if you produce your own food, nobody can hold food over you. No one can use it to control you. And when communities are not allowed to produce their own food, they are kept under the control that do provide it. There is a long history for Indigenous peoples of being held hostage by starvation. We were driven to accept treaties that placed us on reservations in the first and with starvation and genocide as a tool. Many, many different tribes have as part of their original specific types of food staples are listed as commodities that are given to every family on an annual basis or a monthly basis in order to coerce them into treaty and abiding by it in the first place. Indigenous foods often come from plants and animals that are considered nuisances in modern agriculture. And so they have intentionally stamped out, not just as means to control indigenous peoples, but also as means to enforce modern agriculture. So there are, for example, like medicine plants and food plants that we once relied on are now considered to be complete weeds and they are eradicated everywhere, like fireweed. That's a great example that occurs up in, in Canada and parts of the upper Midwest. And it has a lot of medicine value for Indigenous peoples, but it is considered a noxious weed by most farmers and ranchers. Being able to bring back those ancestral foods is not just a way to reconnect with culture. It's not just a way to do something cool. It's also, in my opinion, something that is essential for Indigenous peoples being able to reassert themselves as members of the greater society as equals and not as less and not as, not as a victim, not as the people that were almost eradicated. We are not just the Kurt people. We are human beings. Almost every First Nation and almost every Native American tribe, almost all of us, our name for ourselves, translate into beings. Our humanity has been suppressed and overlooked and stamped out at every turn. 
we have always been made out to be savages or to be made out like we are animalistic, we are not human beings. Controlling us through starvation, <laughs> it's, it's uh, something that is not a dramatic piece of history, but it's something that continues to this very day because poverty on reservations is higher than just about anywhere else outside of the southeastern mountains of the U.S. And until we regain that ability to produce our own food and have our own food systems again, we're not going to be able to rise up out of that. Right. Well, and I like what you said about, you know, this isn't just what was written in the history books that we read about in school. This is still very much a reality in the world that we live in today. And by you story and sharing that with us, I, it's my hope that people hear this and people come to realize that, you know, the work that you're doing and so many other indigenous people, not only in agriculture, but they are, you know, you're, you're speaking the voice of of your truth and the truth of so many others. And I just want to thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for continued work and preserving the legacy of you and other Indigenous people in North America, because I think your story and your upbringing and where you are today is just so powerful and such a powerful testament to the he that you are, because I just think that, you know, what you've been through and what you continue to face are struggles that, you know, I don't think are necessary. And, but it is a day. And by sharing your reality with others, I think is really going to help elevate your story and elevate the stories of others. I hope so. <laughs> so Mickey, if you could give one advice to anyone thinking about starting their own journey into egg what advice would it be? There is no such thing as being too prepared. The more knowledge and research you put into something before you dive into it, the less you're going to suffer and the less you're going to suffer that horrible pain of knowing that living beings that depended on you are now dead. There is a learning curve when it comes to farming and ranching because when you make a mistake, things die. And you can't easily erase that. Instead of just leaping right in and learning as you go, learning before you leap in will save you a lot of time and a lot of heartache. Absolutely. That is well said. Mickey, my last question for you. Is rewarding part about being a rancher for you? The animals, the animals themselves, you know, when you are part of the animal from its birth all the way through until after its death and when it's gone out to feed your community. You have a deep connection not only to the animals raised on your ranch, but you also have a connection to the community you've seen outside of yourself. That is a really powerful thing. It's not for everybody, but for me, it's a thing. Very well said. And I can just hear in your voice the love for your animals and for your community. And I have learned so much from you today. And I know 
I'm speaking for my listeners. I'm sure they have too. So thank you again for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. Thank you for listening. Honestly, it's honestly my pleasure. For the listeners who would like to connect to the show, where can they find you online? And what supports can we give you to help you be successful? Well, you can follow us on Instagram. We're dot ranch. I'm also, but I'm going to be real. I don't use Facebook anymore because they now have banned animal sales and animal byproduct sales and even wool. So I'd, I still have a Facebook page up, but I don't actually that often. And the easiest, best way to connect with me is on Instagram. Just look up dot ranch. It's a private account that kind of a study when you run livestock, because sometimes you get some people that are deeply devout to their own beliefs about the utilization of livestock for food. You can go ahead and send a request and we'll approve it. We don't ban people from making nasty comments on our thing, but we also don't put up with it for more than one time. So that's the reason we're private. We, as far as I would just say, Support your community. Help the people around you. The, the thing that to me matters the most is that all of us remember that we are all human beings. And even the people that you don't necessarily see all the time, the ones that are kind of invisible, sometimes those people have the most impact when they are finally given the opportunity to become visible. That was so well said. Thank you again, Mickey, so much. And I will post those links to your Instagram and Facebook in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Cool. Thank you. Thank you again so much for being a part of the Royal Watch. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening to the Royal Woman Podcast. Special thanks to our Patreon executive producer, Sarah Reedner of Happiness by the Acre, and to my editor, Max Hofer. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can connect with me on social media using the handle at wildrosefarmer on all platforms. If you love the show, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, plus share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.